Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, to chapter 29. Been looking at verses 2 through 29. That's 2 through the end of the chapter this evening. We remember as we read God's Word that His Word is always without error. It is perfect in every way. And it's given to us to build us up that we might grow in the knowledge of God. And so, brothers and sisters, please give your attention now to the reading of this holy word. Now Moses called all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials which your eyes have seen, the signs and those great wonders. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see, and ears to hear, to this very day. And I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You have not eaten bread, nor have you drunk wine or similar drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. And when you came to this place, Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us to battle, and we conquered them. We took their land and gave it as an inheritance to the Reubenites, to the Gadites, and to the half-tribe of of Manasseh. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. All of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into the covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today, that he may establish you today as a people for himself and that he may be God to you, just as he has spoken to you and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I make this covenant and this oath not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here today with us today. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations which you passed by and you saw their abominations and their idols, which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. The Lord would not spare him, for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man, and every curse that is written in this book would settle on him, and the Lord would blot out his name from under heaven. 
and the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law, so that the coming generation of your children who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a far land would say when they see the plagues of that land and the sickness which the Lord has laid on it, the whole land is brimstone, salt, and burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. All nations would say, why has the Lord done so to this land? What does the heat of this great anger mean? Then the people would say, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord, God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods that they did not know and that he had not given to them. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against this land to bring on it every curse that is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger, in wrath, and in, in, in great indignation, and cast them into another land as it is this day. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord for his blessing on the preaching of the word. O oh, Father, how we do pray that you would bless us now as we have gathered together to hear your word. We have gathered together to, to contemplate, to think on uh, the, the great action that was taken when, when we entered into covenant with you. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us to see the, the great weight of what happens when we enter into covenant with you, that we would not take these things lightly, O oh Lord, but that we would... Uh, in view of the solemnity of the whole thing, that we would offer our lives to you and that we would be faithful to you in everything that we do. Lord, where we struggle, we pray that you would help us by your Spirit. And where we do not understand, we pray that you would give us understanding. And we ask that you would work all these things in our hearts, even now, for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have been spending some time now looking at the covenant nature of the book of Deuteronomy. We had spent a, quite a long time looking at the, the law elements of, uh, of the book of Deuteronomy. And that, of course, lasts for a long time, from chapters 5 all the way to uh, most of chapter 26. Moses had been expounding the law of God. In chapter 5, he begins with the Ten Commandments. And then from 6 all the way to 26 is a long exposition of the Ten Commandments and applying it very specifically uh, to the people of God. But one of the things that we've seen is that the book of Deuteronomy is not just law. It's not even most fundamentally law. It is most fundamentally covenant. And this is why we have seen at the end of chapter 26 that there was uh, the, the, the law was applied specifically to the people of God as covenant. We saw the covenant language at the end of, of 26. We saw in Deuteronomy chapter 27 that Moses detailed for the people of God uh, what they were to do in the covenant ceremony when they crossed over the Jordan into the promised land. And we've looked the last couple of weeks at Deuteronomy chapter 28, 
where Moses lays out before the people of God the blessings for obedience and the curses for the disobedience. All these things are related to the covenant. All these things are, are, are covenant ideas such that we can say that the law itself is first and foremost rooted in covenant. It is part of the way in which God defined the relationship between himself and his people in the Old Testament, and, and it is instructive in that way for us as well. Now, the purpose of chapters 29 and 30, and particularly 29 as we come to that this evening, is that Moses is now looking at all that he said about covenant, and he knows now the people of God are going to go into this covenant. And now he exhorts the people one last great time to remain faithful to God in the covenant. The idea is in light of, in light of the, the glory of this covenant, in light of the weight of it, you must be faithful to God. In light of everything that God has said to this point, you must be faithful to God. And so Moses, in light of uh, all the theology of the covenant that he's detailed to this point, reminds the people and exhorts them not to turn away from God. As we saw with chapter 4, so too we see now in chapter 29 as well, that Moses really is a great preacher. Uh, he's a great preacher uh, of the word of God. We see this actually in a number of places in the book of Deuteronomy, um, particularly as we think of uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 11 as well, great preaching, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Uh, all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, Moses does not just want the people to understand with their minds what it is that they are to do. He wants them to feel it in the depths of their souls that they must obey God, that they must obey God. They must obey God because of the wonderful grace that God has shown to them and because of the, the, the great seriousness of entering into covenant with God. This is not a game. It's not something that's small that you can just say, you know, I have my work, I have my hobbies, I also have this other thing that I do, this, this other thing where I you know, have this relationship with God by covenant. The, the covenant is not like that. It is not like that. It is all-consuming is the idea. It is the most serious thing that you can do is enter into a covenant with God. And so Moses exhorts the people, in light of what God has done, in light of the seriousness of the covenant, do not turn away from him. Do not turn away from him. Now, Deuteronomy verses, uh, chapters 29 and 30 is the third speech of Moses. And again, this is really his, uh, his speech where he's exhorting the people to obedience in light of uh, the covenant. And all of these things, brothers and sisters, as we've seen uh, to this point, all of it applies to you. It applies to you because you relate to God in the same way. You relate to God in the same way. There are differences between the Old and the New Covenant, and yet fundamentally, fundamentally, as we've seen all throughout the last several weeks, fundamentally, the covenant is the same. Fundamentally, the covenant is the same. We saw this with the covenant ceremony. You think of uh, the things that had to be done. There is the word of God that had to be written on the stones. There is the animal that needs to be slaughtered. There is the, the covenant blessings and the curses. All those things have a, a great parallel. Christ is the one who is the sacrifice for the covenant. The, he's the blood of the covenant, which we celebrate every Lord's Day. Uh, we have the word of God, which is given all throughout the scriptures. And we have blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. All of these things apply to you. And therefore, when Moses says, in light of God's grace and in light of how serious it is that you are in covenant relationship with him, not to turn away from God, this is an exhortation to you. It's an exhortation to you. Now, we'll look at this passage under three headings. Again, the whole thing is, is grounded in exhortation. But in verses 2 through 9, 
Moses grounds the exhortation in the history of redemption. So we'll see the way in which redemption becomes a, a reason for obedience. Then in verses 10 through 15, we'll note the solemnity of the covenant, the seriousness of the covenant as a grounds for exhortation. And then we'll look in verses 16 through 29, the threat of punishment. Uh, what will happen to you if you do not keep this covenant as grounds for exhortation? Again, that's verses 16 uh, through 29. So we have Moses grounds his ex exhortations in uh, the history of salvation, in the seriousness of entering into the covenant, and by warning the people what will happen if they, in fact, do not remain uh, in good standing with God, as they do not remain in the covenant uh, with God. And so look with me again then at verses 2 through 9, as Moses gives a recap of all of the things that God has done for the salvation of his people to this point all the things that he has done uh, for them. The, the, the main idea being, in light of all that God's done for you, you have to obey him. It is a great sin, and the sin becomes much greater if God has done all these things for you, and if you will then not obey him. Now, Moses has already detailed for us, uh, for even chapter lengths, he's given us a history of salvation to this point. Remember, this is the way that the book of Deuteronomy be, be, begins. Chapters 1 through 3 is a long record of the things that God had done to save his people. There was the, the, the book of Deuteronomy being consistent with covenant documents in general, uh, begins with a history of redemption. And what we saw in chapters 1 through 3 of Deuteronomy is that basically, in light of all that God has done for them, he'd done quite a lot for them, uh, particularly in the wilderness and in the defeat of the kings to the east of the Jordan, that... Uh, the people of God must serve him. Now here, the point in verses 2 through 9 is basically to give a, a brief overview, a brief, um, uh, he's, he's trying to, to summarize uh, what he had said in more detail in other places. And basically here, he breaks up God's actions into three parts. If you think of the, the salvation that God's people received in the Exodus, there are really three parts to it that have happened so far. There's going to be another one that's going to happen when Joshua brings the people over into the land. Uh, but there are three parts that have happened to this point, And there, there are th these three that Moses really emphasizes. The first is the redemption out of Egypt, verses 2 through 4. The second one is the wilderness wanderings, verses 5 and 6. And then the third is the defeat of Sihon and Og in verses 7 and 8. And you remember that that last one, uh, Moses spent quite a lot of time uh, giving us uh, uh, details on that in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Deuteronomy. So those are the three things. Moses brought the people out of the land of Egypt. He led them through the wilderness for 40 years, and he also defeated the kings to the east of the Jordan. And now they are uh, where they are now, on the, in the plains of Moab, about to cross over uh, the Jordan. Now so let's consider these three things, what it is that God, in fact, did for his people. Notice the emphasis in verses 2 through 4 of what God did is he emphasizes with regard to the redemption out of Egypt, the great signs and wonders that God did in this redemption. Now, if you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses emphasized this quite strongly. And he said, you know, you can ask from one end of heaven to the other whether anything like this has ever even been heard of, that a God would fight for his people the way God fought for you. You can ask not only from one end of heaven to the other, but from the beginning of creation until now. And Moses says, if you remember, no one has ever seen or heard of anything like the salvation that you have received by uh, these great signs and wonders that God has accomplished on behalf 
of his people. The idea is that this redemption was unlike any other. And if you have benefited by this redemption, how is it that God could deliver you out of slavery with all these great signs and wonders and that you could then turn away from him and serve other gods? The emphasis falls on, on the greatness of the actions that God has accomplished for his people. If God has done all this for you, how could you disobey him? Next, Moses moves on to the wilderness wanderings in verses five and six. Now, uh, this is something that, that uh, Moses p- uh, picked up on again in uh, chapter eight of the book of Deuteronomy. It makes similar emphases. So again, this is something of a summary that's being given. And we often think of the wilderness wanderings as being times of great punishment, and they were. If you remember the reason why the people of God were wandering around the wilderness for 40 years is because they refused to enter into the promised land. So they refused to enter. God says, if you're not going to obey me, if you're not going to trust in me, then you are going to have to wander around this wilderness and all of you will die. All of those who were over 20 years old were going to die and your children, whom you said would be a prey, they are going to be the ones that get to go into the land. And so it was a punishment, but in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and in these two verses, there's another element that's being that's emphasized by Moses. And that is the fact that while the wilderness wanderings were a punishment, it also showed God's really amazing providence and grace to his people. That he trust, he, he, he taught them to trust in him during those 40 years. And he really miraculously preserved them. If you think about it, there are 2 million people, about 2 million people wandering in a desert. They have no home for 40 years. And they have to continue to live and survive. You need food for all those people. You need water for all those people. And what God says is, you know, if you look back on these 40 years, notice none of your clothes were out. You had no food. And yet I provided for you. I provided for you every day without fail, miraculously, manna from heaven. And I provided for you uh, the water from the rock. Even as I punished you for your disobedience, yet I preserved you in my grace that I might still give to you all the blessings that I had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The wilderness warnings were hard, but notice God was gracious through the whole thing. Something very similar happens today. If you think about uh, the, the, the struggles that we go through, the trials that we face, and yet, God preserves us through the whole thing. It's like he provides us manna when, it, when we have nowhere else to turn. And he provides it to us while we are in the wilderness wanderings of this world until we finally reach our destination. And that's what, that's what God did for the people in the wilderness. He provided for them. And that's part of their salvation. That's part of the story by which God brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land. But then thirdly, he emphasizes the defeat of Og and Sion on the edge of the promised land. Now, again, this was something that uh, Moses goes into great detail in chapters two and three of the book of Deuteronomy. And if you remember, this is what God did at the end of the 40 years. So the 40 years are ending. And then as a sign that the conquest is beginning, there were these kings to the east of the Jordan uh, that came out and fought against the people of God. They were also giants and God gave them into the hands of, of the Israelites such that they were able to conquer them and take all of their land. And this really showed God's amazing grace, not just because he gave them into the hands of the Israelites, but because now um, the people of God were in possession of more land than what they originally thought they were going to be in possession of. The promised land was the land to the, east, to the west of the Jordan. Now they have very large, a very large portion of land uh, to the east of the Jordan as well. God in his grace gave them even far more uh, than what they could even imagine and what they were even anticipating because God gives grace for grace. And it showed the people of God that 
God has the ability also to give them the promised land to the west of the Jordan. So this is a brief summary of all that God had done for his people. If you think of all these things, there's these wonderful, great blessings, and now they're on the edge of the Jordan and they're going to cross over into the land. Uh, the, the, we're now at the very end of Moses' life, so it's going to be just weeks before what we read of in Joshua is actually going to come uh, to pass. So now the people are poised to go over and cross over the land. And the idea, that the summary statement in verse 9 is simply this. If God has done all these things for you, you have to keep his word. Notice what he says in verse 9. Therefore, in light of all these things, in light of the redemption out of Egypt, in light of the wilderness wanderings and God's great preservation, in light of the conquest to the east of the Jordan, in light of all these things, keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. Keep the word of God. So God's grace becomes the grounds for the exhortation. The idea is this, simply this. If God has done so much for you, how could you possibly turn away from him? And if God has done so much for you, it is incredibly wicked. It's incredibly evil to turn away from this God and not to serve him. Now, one of the things we've noted all throughout the book of Deuteronomy is all of these exhortations are actually heightened greatly in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. If it is the case that God's grace in salvation provides the grounds for exhortation in the Old Testament, then surely the same is true for us. If it is an evil and wicked thing to turn away from a God who would deliver you out of slavery, when you basically were going to spend your whole life in slavery, you were going to live, die, working, serving a king, and having nothing. If that, if God gets you out of that and brings you into a land where you get to be with him, you're in the presence of God, if that is a great blessing, if God were to do that for you, and then you turn away from that God, surely that would be a great evil. But brothers and sisters, think of this. Every single week, as we gather together as the people of God, we are reminded of the glory, not of Moses, but the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're reminded of the glory, not of redemption out of Egypt, but of the redemption out of death itself. We've been redeemed from death and not to be saved from a power like Pharaoh, but being saved from the power of the devil himself. Think of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who, as God, yet came in the flesh to save those doomed to die, who did great signs and wonders, even far greater than the ones that Moses did, even as we're looking at uh, in the, the, uh, the morning now with Matthew chapters 8 and 9, the one who preached the good news to the poor, the one who showed amazing grace to sinners, who established the kingdom of God, who suffered and died in humiliation, who was raised on the third day to defeat death for you, who ascended on high as the great and exalted king and who pours out the spirit on all. Now, brothers and sisters, think, if this is the savior that you serve, what kind of sin would it be for you to turn away from him to serve other gods? If, if when Moses speaks about the greatness of the salvation of the Exodus, if turning away from God in light of that means, means really incomprehensibly great wickedness and sin, how much more is it, uh, is it a sin for a person to turn away from Christ who has saved you from everlasting death? Surely no one who has had their hearts transformed and who has anything of this grace in their inward heart Surely nobody would do such a thing. 
And Moses says, therefore, keep the words of this covenant. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant. You have entered into covenant with God. You have entered into covenant with God, brothers and sisters, and you must keep the words of the covenant, being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice the second thing then. That's the, that's the first thing that, that Moses says. He recounts very briefly the history of redemption. Notice the second thing that he says in verses 10 through 15. He, he grounds the exhortation to obedience in the solemnity of entering into a covenant with God. It's not just that God has done all these things for you. It's also that entering into covenant with God is a, a very serious thing that you cannot take lightly. It's not just like a, a common contract that you make with your plumber or something. Uh, it, it's nothing like that. It is the God of the universe who is establishing a relationship with you where there are expectations for how you're going to behave in this relationship. And it is the grounds of your very life itself is, is, with, is with respect to this very covenant. It is a serious thing and it cannot be taken lightly. The one with whom you have to do in this covenant is God and he is a consuming fire. He is a consuming fire. Now, the way that Moses emphasizes the seriousness of entering into this covenant relationship is by going into great detail into exactly who is entering into this covenant. And the whole point of this is that Moses is saying you and you in particular, you as an individual, you specifically are entering into this very serious covenant with God. And therefore, you specifically need to take this very seriously. And so notice what he says. He says, all of you, verse 10, all of you stand today before the Lord your God. Then he begins to list out who all that is. Who specifically is this? Your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, not just them, your little ones and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water. Everyone, Everyone, from the least to the greatest, males, females, old, young, every single person is entering into this covenant. All of them. Now, the way Moses breaks up this list, the, the, the first verse has to do with the, the leaders of, the, of, the, of the, the people of God. And the second verse is simply then everyone else. That's the way that Moses is breaking up uh, those two verses. And the great emphasis then is that even though it is true that the nation as a whole enters into this covenant with God. All of the people of God as a people are in, entering into this covenant. Yet, the way in which the nation is going to keep the covenant is by every single individual member in the covenant themselves personally keeping the covenant. That there is a sense in which there is a community element to the covenant, and yet Moses is emphasizing that there is in fact also an individual element. Now, this is important to keep in mind because the relationship between individual responsibility and the group or the community is something that's not re really very uh, understood very well today. And this is because their um, modern thought has kind of oscillated between these two. And we've um, modern thought has gotten it wrong on the one end, and then there's been an overcorrection on the other. And so, for instance, what's typically called modern thought as opposed to postmodern thought has emphasized very greatly the idea of individualism. The idea of, you know, you just cast off all authority. I can do it all by myself. You know, this is uh, often related to a false sense of freedom. Um, and this would be uh, part of the, the, the bad element of American freedom. I'm not saying American freedom is bad, but the, but the idea of um, like an American individualism would, would, would stem from this kind of thought, 
this kind of false view of freedom. Now, there is a, a freedom that, of course, needs to be maintained, uh, but with the Enlightenment, freedom often meant casting off of all authority so that I could do what I wanted personally. And so that was not good. And that, of course, is not good for the church either. This is what produces um, the, the thinking that, you know, me and myself, my Bible is all I need. If I have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't really need to extend beyond that. I could take or leave church. Church is basically just a mass of individuals that are all kind of doing the same thing. So it can be good or useful for me to be a part of that, but it's not necessary. It's not necessary. As long as I'm acting my, by myself, I'm going to be okay. So there was, there was that. The, the Enlightenment thought in some ways produced this kind of overemphasis on, individual, uh, on individualism. I have a personal relationship with Christ. What more do I need? Now, with postmodern thought, there was a reaction to this, and it was really an overcorrection. So whereas the, in the Enlightenment thought there was the, the loss of the whole for the sake of the individual, in postmodern thought, and this is really what we're dealing with today, there is a loss of the individual for the whole. And so there is a, a receding of, of one to the other. In, in postmodern thought, the only thing that matters is the group. The only thing that matters uh, is the group. This is why today it's so, um, there's, there's so much talk of, of race and gender and sexuality and basically, if you are a female, there is a kind of female perspective that you have to adopt. And you're basically, you are what you are as long as you're a part of this group and really nothing else matters. And the same thing is true with race and with the way that that's discussed. And the same thing is true even with religion. Uh, in, in this system, every group has its own truth. That's why the, there's a prolifer uh, proliferation of the idea of your truth or my truth. It is that the group that you are a part of is the only thing that matters. And the group itself has its own truths. And people are not really responsible for their individual actions. They are only responsible insofar as they belong to a particular group. So for instance, we talk about something like a like white privilege is, is very much related to this. Um, you have it if you're white. It doesn't really matter any, what else there is about you. If you grew up poor, if you uh, grew up with, without a father or a mother, if you were orphaned, if you had a disability, uh, you still have white privilege because you're a part of the group. So the individual element doesn't matter. The only thing that matters uh, is, in fact, the group. And this is really an overreaction. It's an overreaction to the problems of the Enlightenment that focused too much on the individual. And this has even crept into theology. If you're familiar with the new perspective on Paul, uh, this is something that, uh, that they uh, emphasize, the collective over the individual, and that they get wrong. And so uh, someone like an N.T. Wright, so one of the, the main proponents of new, uh, the new perspective on Paul, will say that, you know, the Bible doesn't really teach one how he gets saved. It doesn't, Paul is not really about uh, how an individual gets saved because the story of salvation is the story of Israel. It's the story of a people. It's not the story of individuals. And therefore, the only thing that really matters is the group. And the group is really all that Paul is, really cares about. And so the individual is actually not, uh, not what's in Paul's mind when he's talking about salvation. And this is also wrong. It's wrong. Uh, what the Bible does and what Moses is doing here is he brings the individual and the community together. The nation enters into covenant with God. The nation as a whole enters into this covenant. And yet Moses addresses very specifically every individual. You, you personally have a responsibility to God. And even as Moses builds out the exhortation, the threats, the punishments that will come upon you if you don't obey. In verses 16 through 21, he emphasizes what will happen to the individual. Let's say the whole nation is obedient to God, and there's one individual who says, I'll, I'll just benefit. I'll just go my way, and um, you know that everyone else is going okay. I'll surely benefit from everyone else being faithful. 
I'll get to eat of the fruit of the land myself. And Moses says, no, if you do not obey, you will be singled out and destroyed. That's what he says. You must obey individually. And then he says in verses 20 through 28, he emphasizes the nation. If the nation goes astray, the entire nation will be destroyed. There is a connection between the individual and the community, and you can't have one without the other, is the idea. And Moses even emphasizes this in other places as well. You think of Deuteronomy chapter 13, where there are these tests for apostasy, and there are these, uh, these laws about what to happen, uh, what's to happen if someone turns away from God. And there are two for individuals, what you are to do if an individual turns away. And then there is one for an entire city, what you are to do if a city as a whole turns away uh, from God. And the idea is that in either case, there is to be a complete destruction of the, of, of the person or the city. The idea is, is that there is no way to evade the truth that you are personally responsible for your own faith. Your walk with the Lord is something that you must take ownership of. Nobody else can. Your parents cannot believe for you if you're a child. You do not you are not automatically saved because you are a member of a Christian home, even a faithful Christian home. And your spouse cannot believe for you. You individually must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And your weakness in your faith is ultimately your responsibility. And Moses is exhorting you as an individual to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be faithful to all that he commands. And the reason this is so important is because, as Moses says in verses 12 to 13, the thing that you as an individual are doing in Moses' context is you are entering into a covenant relationship with God. Now, notice what Moses says in verses 12 and 13. The idea is that um, by this covenant, God becomes your God. We've seen that in a number of places in Deuteronomy. It's, it's, uh, it's covenant language through and through. But also, notice that the way Moses describes this is that, is that it is an oath. It's an oath. It's not just a covenant, but it's a covenant and an oath. Moses says this in verses 12 and 14. He says, I make this covenant and this oath with you. Now, this, this uh, is paralleled by the idea of membership vows that we take today. Um, membership vows where we, where we swear to God that we will, in fact, be faithful to him. So why this is so, this is so important, if you think of what, what, um, what Moses did with the people of God in his day versus what we do today, if you think of you know, what's the thing that's kind of like this in my own day, it is your membership vows that you took. You think about what happened when you took membership vows to God. You pledged yourself before God that you would serve him in this church. That's what you did. And if you think about the first time that happened for you, the first time you did that, if you, you, know, if you didn't transfer from another place, when you did that, that was the time that you entered into a covenant relationship with God with a vow before God that you would be faithful to him. It is deadly serious. You as an individual did that. And you as an individual are accountable to God for that vow that was made, either that you took yourself or that you took on behalf of your children in infant, uh, as happens with infant uh, baptism. But the idea is, is that this is quite weighty. It is a covenant sealed even with an oath. I had one professor who, when a person was, uh, he was a professor and a pastor at the same time, and um, he was telling us a story of a time when someone was leaving his church, and they didn't really have a good reason. They were just leaving. 
And he said uh, to the person, he said, so you're divorcing us. And the member said, well, no, I'm not divorcing you. I'm just, uh, you know, I just, you know, I think I just need to find another church. He said, no, you're, you're divorcing us. You, you made a covenant. We, we, there was vows that were taken and you're leaving. And the person was like, oh, well, I never, I guess I never really thought about it that way. But brothers and sisters, that's the seriousness. Uh, you, you can't just walk away from this commitment. Just as you can't walk away from a marriage, you cannot walk away from the commitment that you made to God. You can't just, you can't just do that. You are divorcing in that sense if you do that. Now, of course, there's all kinds of valid reasons to leave a church, uh, but the idea is, is that this is deadly serious. It is deadly serious, and that's what Moses is trying to impress upon the people. You, you, you individually are entering into this covenant sealed with an oath. You yourself are taking this oath upon yourself. You are agreeing to all the stipulations of this covenant. If you turn away, if you turn away, you will see God's wrath and it will be just. Do not turn away from him. Now notice, even further, Moses says in verses 14 and 15, it's not just with those who are present at that time that Moses is making, that God's making this covenant with, but it's actually even future generations, that's the point of verses 14 and 15. So he says every single person in this nation, verses 10 and 11, 12 and 13, are entering into this covenant sealed with an oath. And then 14 and 15, even those who are not yet born, even they are entering into this covenant. And they have the same responsibility that you do. The idea is that this would then cover every single individual ever born in Israel in the whole Old Testament are subject to these words that Moses himself is saying. And for us, the same is true in the New Testament as well, for those who are under grace with, the, with regard to our relationship to the new covenant. There is an obligation for covenant fidelity that applies to every single individual in every age of the church until the return of Christ. It is not a small thing, and it applies to you specifically. Now, so those are the, the first two things that, that Moses grounds this exhortation in. He says, you know, in light of all that God's done for you and in light of the solemnity of this covenant, do not turn away from him. Now, the last thing he does in verses 16 through 29 is he gives particular warnings uh, um, with regard to the punishment that people will experience if they do, if they do in fact, turn away from God. And as I mentioned, he warns the individual first in verses 16 through 21, and then uh, warns the nation as a whole in verses 20 through, in 22 through 28. And again, the idea in verses, particularly 19 to 21, where the individual is mentioned, is that, this, that there is a person who believes he will be okay because he is surrounded by others who are faithful. And so he has this temptation to say in his heart, you know, I'm just going to keep going my way. I know I, I should be a bit more, you know, serious about these things related to Christ and God. I know I should probably be in worship more. I should probably be more faithful in reading my Bible. But, you know, I'm just going to keep going my way. And, you know, it's been good for everyone else. It'll be good for me as well. Now, this would have been a particular, uh, particularly weighty temptation in the Old Testament where, you know, the land is going to be blessed based on the faithfulness of a few, uh, of, of the nation as a whole. So if, if, the, if the land is blessed, it would, you could see why someone would be tempted to say, well, the land will be blessed. I will surely get to participate in the blessings of the land. How could, how could I not participate uh, in those? And yet, God says in verses 20 and 21, that he will, and there's something of a, of a, 
of difficulty with the translation. These are all translated as what God would do. The Lord would not spare him. It's better to understand this as a future, though. The Lord will not spare him. This is what will happen, not, not what would happen hypothetically, but this is what will happen when a person uh, does these particular things. And the idea is that God will single out the person and make sure that that individual, apart from the nation, will experience all the covenant curses. The idea is there is no way to hide. If everyone else is faithful, but you are not, God knows how to reserve for punishment every single individual who is not faithful to him. And there is, there's just no other way to be saved. And this is always a temptation of people uh, in every age. You think of uh, Jeremiah as he is seeing uh, all these covenant curses actually come upon the people. And he, he warns the people in Jeremiah 7. He says, you know, there are all these people that are around and they just keep saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Surely God will not destroy this temple. And if he's not going to destroy this temple, then he's not going to destroy me as an individual. That was the idea. And they're saying like, I, I can just... I can just hold on to uh, the, the, the situation of blessing that is found everywhere else, and surely the Lord will not then pay me back specifically as an individual. And Jeremiah says, well, you remember what happened at Shiloh, where there was another house of the Lord before this temple was built, and God completely removed it. And he still brought all the curses on all the people who were disobedient. And the point is, again, you yourself as an individual must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The nation moves forward as all of the individuals in the nation are faithful to God. And the same is true with the church. Our church moves forward when every individual member understands, I must serve the Lord myself. I must be faithful to him myself. And so Moses addresses both the individual very directly uh, and the nation as a whole. Now, we're not going to spend too much time on verses 22 through 28. Um, it's very similar to the things that we saw at the end of, of chapter tw uh, uh, 28, where um, there are the covenant curses for disobedience. That, those are the curses that were going to come upon the nation as a whole. But the, but the idea is, is that the, the, the wrath of God in the Old Testament was going to be so severe that everyone who passed by would be astonished at the destruction when they see it. That's how serious it, 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 that it's going to be. That's what, that's what Moses says. They'll pass by and they'll say, what did they do? How could they? It's, it's not a normal thing. It, it would be so peculiar that people would have to say, something was happening that wasn't right. Something had to have been happening. And then there will be the explanation. It's because they turned away from the Lord God. The exhortation is that you must, in light of the salvation you've received, in light of uh, the great history of redemption, in light of the seriousness of entering into covenant with God, you must not turn away from him. Now, the chapter ends with a very famous verse, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The idea here is God doesn't reveal everything to his people, but everything that he has revealed is to this one end, that you would obey him that you would understand the salvation that is found in Christ and that in light of that salvation, your heart would be changed and that you would obey him. Now, there are other things that God hasn't revealed. Those things are for the Lord. They are related to his decree. He doesn't reveal them to us. But if you want to know what is the purpose of everything that God says is that you would know him 
that you would love him, and that flowing from that, you would then obey him. And so Moses ends his exhortation with this, really a summary of the theology of, uh, of the word of God as a whole. Now, if you were to ask then, okay, so the people of God are entering into this covenant with God. Do they have the ability to obey? Can they actually keep this covenant? Now, we've seen in other parts of Deuteronomy that Moses understands by prophecy that the people of God are not going to obey this covenant. This is the reason, part of the reason why the exhortations are so strong. He is exhorting them over and over again because he really knows that they're, they're, they've not been given this heart. And this is what Moses says in verse 4, something that we didn't quite touch on. Notice what he says. He says, Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. This is something that, that Isaiah picks up on in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, you know, I'm going, I'm sending you to a people who have eyes, but they do not see, who have ears, but they do not hear, who have hearts, yet they do not understand. They don't take any of this, these things to heart. Israel was not given the ability to obey in the Old Testament. By and large, there was always a small number, a remnant that did. But by and large, Israel was not given the heart to obey. And this is the reason why they were led off into exile. In the Old Testament, the letter of the law was given. The heart to keep that letter wasn't. But brothers and sisters, here is where we see the great difference between the Old and the New Covenant. Where Paul will say, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The reason the letter kills is not because the letter is not a gracious letter. It's because the letter comes with exhortations. But the letter cannot make you believe. But what happens in the New Covenant is it's not just that God says, here is what you must do. You must obey me. You must love me. You must believe in my son. But he also says, and I will put that faith into your hearts. I will put that faith sovereignly into your hearts such that you will obey. This is something that we, we see all throughout the prophets. We're actually going to look at it next week. This is the great thing that even Moses points out is going to be the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. We'll see this next week. This is, this is the great difference. In the old covenant, the ability to obey was generally not given. In the New Covenant, it is. In the New Covenant, generally, faith is given. Now, brothers and sisters, you're not to take these things lightly. You're still not to take these things lightly at all. But it does mean as well that when you think about your requirement for obedience, and you want to know what should I do when I see myself struggling, you have recourse to an advantage that is really incomprehensibly better than anything that an Old Testament saint could do. You can call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and beg of him to pour out his spirit on you. The spirit has been given and the spirit does give life. You think of what, what uh, the Lord Jesus Christ teaches in Luke chapter 11. If you being evil know how to good, give good gifts, he's teaching on prayer. How much more does your heavenly father know to give his spirit to all who ask him? The thing that God promised to do in the new covenant is in fact given. And therefore, brothers and sisters, do not turn away from God. Do not turn away from him. In light of all that he's done for you, in light of the seriousness of this relationship that you have with him, do not turn away from him. In light of the, the, the punishment that will be yours if you turn away from him, do not turn away. But also, brothers and sisters, when you find yourself struggling, when you find yourself struggling, call upon the Lord and beg of him to give you the spirit. What we see in the, New, in the Old Testament is the reason why all this history is given is because it shows without a shadow of a doubt, if the Spirit is not given, there is no faith. 
That's the, the whole history of the, old, of the Old Testament. If it is left up to man, even with all the advantages that the people of God had, there will be no obedience. But if the Spirit is given, there will be obedience. And therefore, brothers and sisters, call upon the Lord, and may it be that He would, in fact, grant you a great measure of the Spirit, that you would be strengthened, and that you would not turn away from Him, that, that God would give you eyes to see and ears to hear which is given only by the Spirit, that you would truly love the Lord Jesus Christ. May it be that you would always seek God for this, and may it be that he would always be gracious to give this blessing above all others to us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for your grace and your mercy to us as we think of all of these wonderful things which point to your Son, the Lord Jesus all of, of the great acts of salvation which are given in the Old Testament. Lord, we even thank you for the contrast between the Old Testament and the New, that we have over a thousand years of history that shows what happens when the Spirit is not given, that we ourselves might not have the mistaken belief that we can obey you of our own strength. We have, we have 1,500 years uh, since Moses, from the time of Moses to the time of Christ, of historical evidence that shows that we absolutely need you in order to keep covenant with you. How thankful we are, Lord, that we live in these times, that we can call upon your name, that you do give your spirit, and how we do plead with you that you would, that you would give us your spirit so that we could see the greatness of this redemption, as Moses has taught us, the seriousness of this covenant, the weight of the punishments, and that we would see these things with eyes wide open, with hearts that understand, with hearts that love you, and that we would keep covenant with you. For Lord, we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart, that through the preached word your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.